following sermon was originally preached in 2019 in a series on Acts at Horizon Reformed Christian Fellowship. It's being re-released here to just further the conversations we're currently enjoying in our small groups at New City Presbyterian this term. Uh, Many thanks to Horizon for granting us permission to do that, and to God be the glory. I wonder how many of you used to go to Sunday school when you were younger. Show of hands, maybe? And I wonder how many of you didn't go to Sunday school. And uh, probably some of you, by the looks of things, don't have hands. Or you just don't feel, don't feel comfortable raising them up, perhaps. Uh, I never went to Sunday school, just for the record, since I'm asking the question. I didn't grow up in the church. And so I've only got a, a sense, I guess, of what goes on there in Sunday school. But I think I got a taste of what goes on in Sunday school as a parent uh, through my children, when my children went to Sunday school. One thing that I sort of picked up and, and something that I learned, and I heard this from other parents, uh, and if you did used to go to Sunday school, maybe you can clarify this for me, is that there's a thing, you know, that the answer in Sunday school is always Jesus. To the point that the kids stop even listening to the questions because the answer's going to be Jesus. Is that right? Am I up to speed? Okay, I'm up to speed with Sunday school. Well, I'm afraid uh, for those of you who, who did used to go to Sunday school, today might feel a little bit like you're back there. Uh, and indeed, this whole series in Acts, really, that we've started, might already be feeling to you as though you're already back there. Uh, because the fact is, so far, that this story of Acts uh, has been all about Jesus. And uh, if anything, really, Acts is starting to open up more aspects of Jesus uh, than we might have previously uh, given that much thought to in the past. For example, Luke is focused on the fact that uh, Jesus Christ uh, wasn't just crucified, as we so often focus on. And then again, he wasn't just uh, raised from the dead, as we other times tend to always focus on. There's more than that, Luke's telling us. Jesus ascended back to the Father, and he is seated at the right hand of God, and he is reigning over all things from heaven. God has made him both Lord and King, we read last week in Peter's sermon. And so all the things we're reading about in our journey through Acts are happening under the the sovereign, uh, the, the watch, the reign of Jesus Christ. He's directing all things by his Holy Spirit whom he sent. Uh, Even back at the very beginning of this book, uh, Luke started it out by telling us that uh, in the first book that I wrote, O Theophilus, the guy that he wrote it to, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. The implication being, of course, if we join the dots together, that this book, the second book, is going to be all about what Jesus then continued to do and teach after he was taken up. And so all the kind of questions that we might ask uh, to which we can answer Jesus are just growing more and more as we think about what Luke's doing here. Jesus is just as central to the events in this Acts of the Apostles part of the story uh, as he was in the Gospel part of the story. And I actually think we need to spend more time as Christians thinking about that now aspect of Jesus seeing him as the king who is reigning from heaven now. And so as exciting as this narrative is, is, is getting uh, of the early church in Acts as we're reading through it, we need to keep remembering that it's only even happening in the first place uh, because uh, Jesus is calling the shots. 
It was Jesus who commissioned these people to do his work. It was Jesus who sent the Holy Spirit to empower those people to do this work. And of course, it's his work. It was by his command, and it's in his name, that his gospel mission went forth. In, in chapter 1 again, right at the beginning, Luke, Luke told us, uh, Jesus said to the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This book is all about Jesus' mission and Jesus' church, and we cannot lose sight of that. No matter how exciting the human part of the narrative gets, and it is getting exciting, isn't it? Uh, Only three chapters in. Last week, chapter 2, we saw a whole new age of history has dawned and broken in, and it's an age marked by uh, the Holy Spirit being poured out on all believers now. To, uh, to mark the occasion, the believers at that time, as that change in history shifted in, they were all empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak foreign languages to all the foreign Jews who were gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. But we notice, of course, that the exciting event uh, in that was just a cue, really, for Peter to launch into a sermon about Jesus, about Jesus. Peter didn't preach about the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't preach about the apostles or their power. He didn't preach about the gift of tongues. He preached about Jesus. And people were being saved. And the new fellowship was growing and flourishing. And then at the end of the chapter 2, we read this little exciting note just in passing. And awe, in, in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And note the passive sense, the passive role there. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In today's passage, we get to chapter 3 and Luke picks out just one of those miracles that are being done through the apostles. He picks it up and and draws our attention to this one. Uh, A lame man is healed, if I can read from chapter 3, our passage. Uh, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And don't you just love this stuff? It's, oh, for more than 40 years we're going to learn in next week's part of the passage. This man has been lame from birth. And Peter says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. 
And he's cured. He's cured. And I don't know about you, but even saying something like that to a person in that condition, lame from birth, must have been borderline offensive. But the man must have had a serious prompting of faith to even think about standing up. Something serious is ticking over as Peter's speaking to him. Despite 40 years of of never even the slightest hope, suddenly his heart must have moved before his legs did. And he stands up in Jesus' name. And suddenly he's not just standing, he's leaping, he's jumping for joy. And the first thing on his bucket list, he goes into the temple. He goes into the temple probably for the first time in his life because of all the Jewish regulations and exclusions against the blind and the lame and the deaf and so forth. He's restored now and so he can go into the temple and he does. He walks and leaps and praises God and goes with Peter and John. And the circumstances in this particular miracle just make it incontrovertible for those who are there. I mean, we're talking about uh, joints and tendons and nerves that that don't even know what to do. There's no muscle memory to trigger here because these muscles have never done this work. Lame from birth. And everyone knows it, verse 10 tells us. Everyone knows it. So this miracle gets into people's heads and they're not going to be able to get it out. It cannot be explained away. They know this man. They've seen him all his life sitting there at the gate asking for arms. They walk past him all the time. They've probably given him arms all the time. They've probably just walked past him this morning and threw him a few coins. They know this man has been lame from birth. So when he leaps around like a, like a baby calf that's just found its legs, the miracle just cannot be ignored. And isn't it so similar to Jesus' miracles that we read in the Gospels? So many similarities. A classic example is that one we read this morning from Luke 5 of the paralytic who was uh, lowered through the roof on the mat. And the key difference, of course, uh, between that miracle that Jesus did and and this miracle that Peter does is that uh, Peter uh, heals this man uh, by saying, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up. And walk. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, of course, can just say, I say to you, get up and walk. And that highlights something very important going on here. The miracles are being done through the apostles. Peter has no power other than what Jesus has given him. So he can only heal this man in the name of Jesus. Or in other words, the power of Jesus. It is by the power of Jesus that this man is healed. Jesus' name is not uh, like some kind of magic word that that Peter invokes. It's powerful uh, only because of Jesus' actual power and authority that Luke's been telling us about. Peter has has Jesus' authority here as as apostle. He's been commissioned for this work. He enacts this miracle on behalf of Jesus. Doing this in the name of Jesus means doing this by the power of Jesus. And so we might ask ourselves, who really healed this man? 
This miracle is another example of this partnership that we're understanding as Acts kicks off. Uh, we're right at one level to think of this book as the Acts of the Apostles, as we usually call it. Uh, at another level, we're right at thinking that this book is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as we sometimes think. But we also need to think of it as being the Acts of the risen and ascended and reigning Lord Jesus. We also need to think about the main reason for this miracle here in chapter 3. In chapter 2, we saw uh, that miracle of languages and it opened up uh, the way for Peter to preach about Jesus. And uh, so too, if you if you read it again later, this, this healing miracle in chapter 3, as they head into the temple, serves Peter's purposes uh, for preaching another sermon. And this time, it's about... Miracles? No. It's about healing? No. It's about apostolic authority? No. It's about Jesus. This miraculous sign is to demonstrate to us that Jesus is still all-powerful. He is still all-powerful. That's Peter's focus in the first part in verses 11 to 16 where Peter directs all of the glory for this back to Jesus, specifically to the Jesus who was crucified, the Jesus who was raised again, the Jesus who is now the object of our faith and the one who still has the power to do such things. And so we're at the start of the mission here. We're still in Jerusalem. We're still talking to Jews. This sermon by Peter is is actually quite focused, you'll notice, on the Jews' and their actions in crucifying Jesus. But probably not much more than 50-something days ago, uh, crucifying Jesus would have been very fresh in their minds as Peter's preaching this sermon. It would be like us remembering what we did at Christmas just past. That was a big event about 50 days ago. That's how fresh this stuff is probably for these Jews as Peter's speaking this. And he presses in hard with these words about their actions against Jesus. And then Peter explains the implications of Jesus' death to these Jews by by opening up a whole range of Old Testament uh, scriptures that explain who he is. He confirms uh, Jesus to be uh, God's promised saviour. Therefore, the one who's in power now. He says that Jesus is the suffering servant that Isaiah used to prophesy about in verse 13. And he comes back to that in verse 18. Uh, He says Jesus is God's holy and righteous one, verse 14. He is the author of life, verse 15. He's God's Christ, verse 18. Christ meaning Messiah, anointed one. King. He's a prophet like Moses, he goes on in verse 22. And as Moses had forewarned when he gave that prophecy way back uh, uh, as the Israelites hadn't even gotten into the promised land, Moses said everyone must listen to that prophet when God raises him up or they will be cut off from God's people. So too Jesus is the one whom all the prophets spoke about since Moses, Peter goes on in verse 24. And if you want to go way back, Peter says, way back to about page 12 in your Bibles, Peter says, uh, well, Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham, verse 25. He's the one who it's all been about. He's the one through whom all God's blessings will flow to the nations. 
So it's no wonder that Jesus could say, as we, we know so well from the end of Luke that we looked at last year, uh, Jesus can say that everything written about him in the law of, of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All the promises of scriptures uh, are here, Peter is explaining. Jesus is the long-awaited Christ. He is the Lord. He's the prophet like Moses. He's the offspring of Abraham. And God's blessing is going to flow to all the nations, exactly as promised. And these Jews now in this sermon uh, are given the first chance to become part of that blessing, the first chance to be brought in to God's promises that are going to flow through Jesus. All they need to do is repent and believe in God's holy and righteous one. Jesus is the thrust of Peter's sermon, you see, because Jesus is the thrust of all of God's promises in the Bible. So we see the miracle here is a sign, a sign pointing to a greater truth that we need to pay attention to. Uh, it's like the very similar incident that we were just talking about where Jesus healed that paralytic on the mat in Luke 5. And Jesus explained the point of, of that uh, miracle uh, he said, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralysed, get up, take your mat and go home. So that you may know that I have the authority. Jesus' original intent in that passage, if you want to read it again later, was to offer forgiveness to the paralytic. That's his reason in coming, to bring forgiveness to people. That's how we're going to be swept into God's promises. The Pharisees, of course, could only see a blasphemer because only God can offer forgiveness of sins. And so he says, well, so that you may know I have the authority of God, get up and walk. It's a demonstration so that we may know that he has the authority of God. Uh, he can do what he claims to have come to do because uh, he does what only God can do. And now Peter, in Acts chapter 3, uh, repeats such a similar miracle. And again, not primarily for the sake of healing this man, but as a sign that Jesus is still powerful. Jesus still has the authority of God. It's a powerful sign to them. And it's a declaration that, that, that Peter then makes that Jesus, uh, Jesus is uh, the Messiah. It's, it's upon him uh, that they pin their hopes now. It's, it's in his name that they find forgiveness and are brought into this promise. So they must repent and put their trust in Jesus. And the offer here in this sermon, once again, uh, is forgiveness. Verse 19, uh, Peter calls them and says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. And especially in this context, to these Jews, uh, this offer of forgiveness is, is put there for, for their role in even crucifying Jesus, verse 17. There is forgiveness on offer for that because their leaders led them in ignorance, Peter explains. And how similar Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus offers forgiveness to everyone, everyone who will receive it. And even in this passage we're looking at in Acts 3, to his enemies. But as always, 
The very name of Jesus brings about a divided response. Those of the temple cult uh, are upset that the resurrection of the dead is being taught in chapter 4 and verse 2. Um, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Can you picture the religious leaders of God's people being greatly annoyed that someone might be speaking about the resurrection of the dead? That's a terrible indictment on the state of things that we're talking about here. That's why they were sad, you see, the Sadducees. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in this glorious promise. That's the reality we're looking at in the context here. The crowd, however, are more interested. Uh, and, and Peter has spelt out the consequences for all of them. If they don't uh, repent, and if they don't put their trust in Jesus, from verse 19 onwards, he explains the consequences. Uh, well, if you join the dots, they're there implicitly, because if you don't repent and put your trust in Jesus, uh, your sins won't be blotted out. The times of refreshing won't come your way. God's Messiah won't be appointed for you. And you won't be among the people from all nations to whom God's blessings flow. You will be cut off from God's people. Some people do turn and believe, chapter 4 and verse 4, our passage finishes up. To some people the gospel is the aroma of death, and to other people the gospel is the aroma of life. The religious leaders uh, uh, smell death while Peter's talking and, and, and preaching Jesus' name. But many others hear the gospel and they hear Jesus' name in Peter's sermon and they smell life. 5,000 men are drawn into eternal life as they repent and put their trust in Jesus. Perhaps that figure includes women and children. Perhaps women and children are over and above that number. And in the Greek text, it's actually hard to be sure if this is 5,000 new believers or if this number includes all the ones we've already been reading about. But either way, Jesus is building his church. There were 120 believers we read in chapter 1, verse 15. 3,000 were added in chapter 2 and verse 41. The number was growing day by day, we read in chapter 2 and verse 47. And now, uh, well, we don't even know anymore. Somewhere between 5,000 and who knows how many more than that have been saved and drawn into eternal life in Jesus' name. They believed and repented after they saw the miracle? No, they believed and repented after they heard the word, verse 4 says. And what was the word about? Jesus. Good. You guys are doing really well with these questions today. What do we do then? Here's a tougher question. What do we do then today with passages like this? What, what, what can we learn from this piece of history? Well, much the same as last week, I think. Because chapter 2 uh, and chapter 3 are much the same, just with a different, a different miracle to, to kick off the teaching but this case, I think, is probably a little closer to the bone for us. I don't know. 
Maybe, maybe not. Uh, most of us, I suspect, though, are probably not sitting around uh, wishing that we had the gift of languages all the time, maybe occasionally, but we might more commonly feel like we want an intervention of healing like this. As joyous as it is to read the story of that man, we're battling our own issues. There's a few things I think we can glean from this passage and uh, to start with, if I can think about the sermon first, if you haven't yet received this offer, then let me extend Peter's sermon, his primary message to you here. Uh, it's yours too if you want it. In the name of Jesus, you're invited into forgiveness. You're invited into eternal life. Jesus has died for your sins and if you repent and believe in him, then you will be forgiven and you'll be brought into God's eternal kingdom. God has attested to what Jesus did for us at the cross by raising him from the dead. And he's now reigning in heaven. And reigning in heaven, uh, everything will be put in submission under him. Jesus is the king to whom we must answer, Peter explained last week in chapter 2. And, and this miracle in chapter 3, it testifies again that he is still in power. So repent if you haven't. Believe if you haven't in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for everlasting life. Secondly, uh, if we look at the miracle part of the passage and, and if you do find yourself longing for that uh, healing part of the passage, then that's not a necessarily a bad thing to be wanting. That's a quite a natural thing to be wanting. It's a good thing to be wanting. And perhaps you feel uh, in desperate need of healing in the earthly sense right now. Perhaps it's someone that you love who's in need of healing right now. And you wonder to yourself, well, uh, can Jesus heal people now uh, the way he healed that uh, man in the gate then? I mean, he's still reigning, right? Right. Of course he is. Of course he's still reigning and people do still get healed. In fact, we pray to God that he will heal people uh, all the time. You can come along to prayer meeting on Sunday morning, just for example, and you'll see that happening. You can pray that with us in Jesus' name, that God will heal people. You can pray it yourself anytime you want to. And God hears those prayers. And God... Uh, uh, heals us from time to time and uh, we don't know when but that's no reason not to pray for it. If our requests happen to be in line with his plans and his wisdom which is infinitely greater than our understanding then, well, miracles happen. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 do not be anxious about anything but in Everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Pray for it. Whenever you feel the need, pray for it. James teaches the churches that those who are sick should call the elders to themselves and have the elders pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Not everyone, though, is healed all the time, obviously. 
And all of us are still facing a certain death. Jesus' mission is not to end world hunger or cure all disease, in the here and now, that is, uh, at least. Uh, Jesus' mission is far beyond all that. It's to bring in a whole new created order, a whole new eternity. So if you pray for something like healing, in the here and now, sense of the word, uh, then uh, when healing doesn't follow, it's not because God hasn't heard you. It's most certainly not because God does not have the power. God knows every cell in our bodies uh, and he knows what we need better than what we think and we think we know. So trust him that he's heard you when you pray for it. Trust him that he's powerful enough to do it if it's best for you. And trust that he loves you enough that he will if it's best for you. There's a few points of calibration, I think, regarding the miracle part of the passage, and, and particularly uh, if we uh, reflect on Scripture more generally around this subject. Uh, first of all, uh, if you have restricted God to a box that says miracles only belong in this historical narrative, if you don't believe that Jesus can still heal people now, should he choose to, then you might want to rethink that. Miracles like this one were signs. There's no doubt about that. They were signs of something greater. But so often, uh, other times we read how Jesus just had compassion, just plain out compassion for the people that he healed. He loves us. And I suspect when I look at things like Philippians 4 there, that he loves us to pray, to let your requests be made known to God. Then again, if you have created a box for God that says he must heal everything, then you might want to rethink that too. God will do what God will do. And only God knows what is best. And of course, we might note in passing that God has gifted all kinds of people, doctors and nurses and psychologists and physicians of all kinds. He's blessed us with a creation that holds many remedies and sources of relief. He can work in whatever way he chooses. Most importantly, I think, in terms of these boxes, uh, if your need for God is only about this kind of thing, if it's only about healing or dealing with whatever kind of earthly struggle you're going through, if you've limited God to being sort of a, a genie in the bottle God or, or a when-I-need-him God, then you definitely need to rethink that. You need God all the time, not just when you need a quick fix or a temporary uh, relief or when the wheels fall off. You need him now and forever. You need him so that you can be forgiven and gathered into his eternity that he's got planned and promised for us. So be sure not to overlook God's big picture uh, in your, your desperate need for relief in the here and now. These, these earthly sufferings that are plaguing us, They'll refine us and then they'll pass away. But the, the, the eternal relief and refreshment that Jesus brings us, it'll never end. If we take the miracle and the sermon together and think about what we can do with this, uh, then a third application from this passage uh, is that we ought to be wary of false advertising. 
churches that celebrate signs and wonders with no real mention of Jesus, or churches that celebrate people who perform signs and wonders without any real mention of Jesus. Because the fact is that Jesus has built his church upon the proclamation of his name. The people in Acts aren't being saved by tongues. The people in Acts aren't being saved by healings. They're being saved uh, uh, by, the, by the, the, the news about Jesus Christ. They're not being saved into the church of Peter and John. They're being saved into the church of Jesus Christ. They're being saved by hearing about Jesus, repenting and believing in him. So the church today cannot afford to get so easily distracted with all the the peripheral aspects of the Acts narrative. We should explore those parts of the story. We should discuss them, of course. But we need to keep fixated on the plot. Our primary purpose as a church now, the same as then, it must be to keep proclaiming Jesus. It's exactly what Peter did in chapter 2. It's exactly what Peter does now in chapter 3. And we tend to skim over the preaching slabs here. We've heard all that stuff before. We want to get to the next exciting bit, the next, the next little miracle, the next controversial bit that we can sit around and debate as a church. The signs are just springboards for the apostles to get the name of Jesus into the ears of everyone. Because that is how Jesus is building his church. So for us today, as a church, same as then, we build each other up, we grow each other to spiritual maturity by proclaiming to one another Jesus. And the church, uh, God willing, will grow in number as we continue to meet and proclaim Jesus. Our purpose as believers is not to showcase our our gifts, uh, our uh, Abilities, whatever gifts and abilities we might be given are only given to us for the singular purpose that we continue to build each other up in the name of Jesus. This is going to become a thing in Acts, by the way. Just keep your eye on it. This is going to become a thing. Uh, For the foreseeable future, uh, spoiler alert, uh, the answer is going to keep coming back to Jesus. But what he does as he works through these apostles by his Holy Spirit. Uh, It's not just exciting in terms of the narrative and the events that happen. (laughs) It's exciting in terms of the church that he builds. The church that has continued to grow as he has continued to build it, despite every opposition of history that it's faced, it has continued to the point that we sit here today in Sorrento, 2000 and whatever, 19, we are part of that church. We are part of Jesus' church that he is building on the basis of nothing else we sit here but what Jesus has done for us. Personally, collectively, We only sit here as believers in the name, and that is to say, by the power of Jesus. How fitting then that we close the service today by singing, In Christ Alone. Please join with me.